0: will be uh, three studies in Philippians 3, 1 through 16, because if you know this chapter well, uh, you know that Paul's logic that begins here really in verse 2 of Philippians 3, it stretches all the way to verse 16, Uh, but there's so much good that we want to see, and of course only so much time in the evening on Sundays here at Redeemer uh, to study these texts together. We'll split it into a few different studies. So tonight we have verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to initiate a break and a a point where normally you wouldn't, but I trust you'll see why in in due time. So let's begin as I read verses 1-7 through and then pray and, and we will continue together. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Uh, Father, we we do ask that you would, by your Spirit, instill within us the heartbeat of the Apostle in this passage, that we might consider all things loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, the surpassing worth of being found in him. And may we be found in him even this very night, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It seems like every week uh, brings some project of some sort where I have to... I read different books and run down old sources, and therefore virtually every week comes with an experience of me internally thinking as I'm doing some of this work, why haven't I heard of that book before? And the entry from this week into that category was an old book written by a Scottish pastor named Charles Ross. As best I can tell, the book was published in 1888, and it fell out of favor. For, for decades, until a pastor in the Scottish Highlands was on something of a retreat. And in that home, that cabin where he was staying, he found this old version of Charles Ross's book. And it was a book that was originally based on sermons that Ross had preached to his congregation in the spring and summer of 1887. Uh, they were sermons from what we often refer to as the Upper Room Discourse. So children, that's just from John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17. And what Ross says at the very outset of that book, the very first sentence says this the narrative on which we are about to enter has always been regarded by true believers as a unique and most precious portion of the Word of God. And he titled that book The Inner Sanctuary. And what we come to in Philippians chapter 3, It's no stretch to say, here in Paul's doctrinal teaching, and here in Paul's experiential instruction, it it may just be the most precious and most unique part of Paul's letters. For certainly it's here in Philippians 3 that what we get in a way that no other text I genuinely believe communicates is the inner sanctuary of Paul's spiritual life. Because what we find him doing, as I mentioned before I read the passage, in really verse 1 through verse 16 of this chapter, it's that inward life in the Spirit, that inward life of joy in Jesus Christ that comes to the forefront in a way that no other passage in all of Paul's letters unveil for us. And so it's so rich that, as I said, we're going to spend the next few weeks staring at it together. Uh, but what I want us to see tonight along the way is just four simple parts that I've delineated with one simple word in each division. So the four words that you want to pay attention to, students, along the way. Joyful, watchful, boastful, and reversal. So the first thing that we want to see in this inner sanctuary of Paul's spiritual life is how he's calling us, in verse 1, to be joyful in Jesus Christ. You'll notice what we're told at the beginning of verse 1 once again. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, students, if you know Philippians well, you might stare at that word there, finally, and realize that we're only about at the halfway point of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It reminds me of this old story that many uh, preachers and perhaps even congregations are quite sympathetic with. A young boy came home after the morning service and asked his father over lunch, uh, Daddy, what does the preacher mean when he says, finally, and uh, the dad responded across the lunch table, saying, my dear boy, the preacher means nothing when he says, finally. Because so often, isn't it true, they never actually land the sermon. And it's quite possible that even the way this word works, it just means, and so what I want to say next is, is kind of the import of the word there. or just says, moving on from one thing to the next. But if you know Paul's letters well, it's very common. Uh, Paul seems to say something, And then suddenly something else comes to mind and he goes down a digression that he originally didn't plan on going down and hunting after. And so I think it's quite actually true for us to recognize here at the beginning of chapter 3 in our Bible, Paul probably originally planned to close the letter down. Because what's the summary command of this letter? Well, hasn't it been over and over, rejoice in the Lord. And so he's beginning, at least he thinks initially, to wrap up his words to the Philippians and rejoices that summary command. Now think about, again, the context for the writer, the context for the hearers in this book. We have Paul in prison in Rome, and we know from 2 Corinthians that the Philippian church is living in much poverty. And what Paul says, no matter prison as an experience or poverty as life, you still can And you still must rejoice. Why? Because, of course, the joy is not rooted in the circumstance or the situation. The joy is rooted in the Lord himself. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul knows this is something of a repetition in his instruction to this point. You'll see verse 1 ends. He says, to write the same things to you. Well, it's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. something surely every parent sympathizes with, you know. Children, for me to tell you the same thing over and over and over, it really doesn't bother me to say the same thing over and over and over. And it actually is something you need to hear over and over and over. Because Paul's day was no less like our own. It was a day that longed for new things. It was a day that was eager in novelty. And what Paul's reminding us here right from the outset is so often in the Christian life, it's not about learning what we've never heard before. It's about remembering, believing, and rejoicing in the same old things, lest we forget them, and lest we even despise them. So he says, number one, be joyful in Christ. He says, number two, in verse two, be watchful. Be watchful in Christ. One of my children has a burgeoning aspiration to be a soccer commentator when he grows up. And therefore, in the stone home, there are a number of commentators that he models himself after. And perhaps the, the commentator that has a singular kind of voice in our home is this color commentator. He's an old English soccer player, and he, he loves the game so much, and he gets so excited in the course of an ordinary match that he often will talk over the play-by-play commentator. So when a play is maybe reaching kind of an apex point of interest, you'll hear him cry out from that color commentator microphone, Look out! Look out! And Paul's saying in a jarring way. Look out. Three times in one verse. Now why is it jarring? Only about two sentences before, he's commended his friends. Now he's going to condemn his enemies. He's just said, be joyful in the Lord. And now he throws out a threefold volley of lookouts. You see again, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's this verse that actually in the original language, it's, no real English translation can capture it. It's kind of stilted, staccato-like. It's alliterated there in the original language. It's why one commentator uh, would say you could translate it as something like, beware the curs, beware the criminals, and beware the cutters. And what Paul has in mind here, clearly, the false teachers threatening the church there at Philippi that are, that are wanting to say that you must add something to faith in order to be made right with God. Probably some sort of Judaizer false teaching creeping into the church there at Philippi. And what's rather ironic in Paul's mind is everything that an ordinary Jew would hold to be true in the first century is actually quite The opposite. What do I mean? Well, it was common for a Jew at that time in the first century to believe that Gentiles were dogs. That they were ceremonially and perpetually unclean. Devoid of any sort of divine blessing. And what does Paul say? Look out for the dogs. It was those Jews of the first century who believed that they alone were the ones that were keeping the standard of perfect righteousness according to the Old Testament law. What does Paul say? Look out for the evildoers. It was these people who believed that circumcision according to the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament was the sign of their badge of righteousness under the Lord. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's so often true that throughout church history, when false teaching has crept into many a local church, that that false teaching Ordinarily, at least at the beginning, it sounds quite plausible. And I would imagine for the Philippians' experience there at the church, uh, this false teaching confronting them, it would have sounded quite plausible in what they would have been saying from Old Testament texts. But, but false teaching always is not just plausible, it's ultimately Poisonous. As it leads the soul away from the truth of the gospel that's found in in Jesus Christ, have you ever considered, maybe even considered this week, is there plausible yet poisonous teaching that confronts us in our context? Surely, Paul seemingly kind of throws this cup of cold water spiritually upon the Philippians because he wants them to wake up lest they realize their joy in Jesus Christ suddenly disappears. So he says, be watchful. He says, be joyful. You notice now in verse 3, he says, be boastful. Be boastful in Jesus Christ. Because he means to make this comparison. He means to make this distinction. Look again, verse 3, he says, for we are the circumcision. So you need to know something about circumcision as it would have worked out in that first century context, certainly as the false teachers would have been preaching a false gospel that you must be circumcised in order to be saved, perhaps among another of other different things, they would say. Uh, What you'll find throughout the Bible is that it's true in the Old Testament, in that old covenant era, that the sign of circumcision belonged to those who were included in the covenant community. So therefore, if you were circumcised, it was a sign of inclusion. Among God's people, but what you also find throughout the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, and even into the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, that one of the principal problems that belonged to the Jewish people of old was that they were merely circumcised. Is phrases prophets like Jeremiah would use, the apostle Paul would use. He's they're saying you're circumcised physically. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, Paul tells the church at Rome in Romans chapter 2. It's of the spirit, that which circumcision pointed to. Of course, an external right, an external sign on the flesh, it pointed to the need for a heart cut away from sin. Well, the Jews hadn't realized that eternal, that ultimate reality. And so Paul says, no, we are the circumcision. So kids... Who's the circumcision? Because that's really what the rest of verse 3 says in three different ways. Who's counted among the true circumcision? Well, he says first of all, notice number one, those who worship by the Spirit of God. In the old covenant, the worship of God was dominated by these external forms and these sacred places. And when Jesus comes along, perhaps you can recall the scene with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he says this new covenant era in which we are now living, it's a time when the Lord is looking for worshipers. He's looking for those who worship him in spirit. And in truth, it's not just those who worship by the spirit. You'll see secondly, it's those who glory in Christ Jesus. The word there for glory, you can translate as boast. That's fair enough. You could just translate it as those who boast in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Jews of Paul's time, they, they were a boastful bunch, you, you might want to say, students. They boasted in their ethnic election as Jewish people. Uh, they boasted in their external ethics as obedient believers under the Old Testament law. And Paul says, no, what, what you must boast in, if you truly belong to God's people, is Jesus Christ. You know, kids, uh, I hope you boasted in the Lord Jesus this week, gloried in him, exalted him, honored him. And Paul even seems to have a particular way in which we're to boast in Jesus Christ. You see the end of verse 3, who is the circumcision, while well, those who put no confidence in the flesh... Uh, Paul's saying here, isn't he, that to boast in self and boast in the Savior, these are things that don't go together. You can boast in one but not the other. You can have confidence in the flesh or you have confidence in the Savior himself. This is what he means by being boastful in Jesus Christ as verse 4 and 5 and 6 now we're going to say, Paul of all people had reason. To boast in the flesh. Some years ago when I was at a different church, we had the need for another associate pastor. The church was growing. There were some ministries that needed care and particular attention. And so what we ended up doing as we delineated the job description that was going to belong to this pastor, we began to ask our local friends and even perhaps even ministry network throughout the nation if they had any good candidates that they might send our way for the job, these men that they might endorse for the pastoral position. And we got a few names and after something like three or four weeks. Uh, we realized that nothing was actually coming to fruition, and so we decided to post the job on a few seminary boards' job sites, and within about two or three days, we were inundated with a, a long list of resumes. And so we printed them out in one huge batch and began to sort them into categories. And one of the categories we had right at the beginning was underqualified. We would look at what his experience in education was, and then we'd just throw it into that batch and then do something with that batch. But then we have another batch over on the other side, which was overqualified for the position by way of perhaps what his experience and gifting was. And what Paul's going to do now in our text is show us really his spiritual resume as a Jew. And if anyone had reason to be overconfident in his fleshly gain, it was Paul. Notice what he says, verse 4 through 6. the synagogue in which he grew up should they have given awards like most likely to succeed spiritually? It would have been Paul. Certainly, he even tells the church at Galatia that he was far exceeding all the peers in his generation in his obedience to these Old Testament rites and rituals. But he says, "It's all for loss." If one truly boasts in Jesus Christ, that leads to the fourth section, which is the reversal in Christ. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have these vivid recollections when I was a young boy of, of dad, once a month, my father on a Friday evening, pulling out this large file That was called the finance folder. And he would lay out the file on the floor as we were watching a movie or perhaps some sort of game, sports game, uh, that night on the television. And what he would do for something like 90 minutes or two hours, he would sort out the month's finances before our eyes and ears, often asking my mother what this expense was to be applied to in the budget because he wanted to keep everything precise. He wanted to know where the money was, where it was going, and what money was coming in. Now, when you come to verse 7 of Philippians 3, Paul is using financial budgetary language when he speaks about counting things as loss, counting things as gain. He's basically subverting the known realities common to the time and certainly common to our senses. All you would say is if you wanted to apply it to our context today, it'd be like my dad sitting down and looking at his monthly ledger, as it were, and discovered all of the things that he were thought to be credits to his account maybe deposits into the account, had actually all disappeared. They were all for naught. They were all for loss. That's what Paul is saying. Everything I used to think was spiritually profitable, I realize that's loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Confidence I once had in the flesh, I now no longer have because I realize you, you can't be right before God because you're confident in the flesh. And so what he's simply saying here, isn't he, is that loss for the sake of Jesus Christ is one of the shocking realities that belongs to the truth of the gospel. It's why one pastor I love said of this passage that sometimes we need to read verse 7, really through verse 11, and let the realities of the gospel shock our spiritual senses. Because so often what's common in our life is we look to people next to us and we begin to compare. Well, at least I'm not like him. At least I'm better than her. And you start stoking confidence in the flesh. When in the realities of the good news of Jesus Christ is that you look at people next to you and say, if they only knew what was on the inside, if they only knew what, I was thinking if they only knew if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, my life would be lost forever and ever. It's meant to shock us, to wake us up spiritually. And so as we close, let me just bring two final things to your mind. As Lord willing, next week, we pick up Paul's inner sanctuary of thought. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is our great ground. If Paul says, I, of all people, have reason to be confident in the flesh. But now I'm not confident in the flesh. What's he confident in? Well, surely it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What Christ's obedience means for him, what Christ's righteousness means for him, what Christ's work means for him. Christ Jesus is the great ground of our confidence because children, understand how even though it might look different in our 21st century culture than Paul's 1st century culture, that even many of you can grow up in a church like ours and have confidence in the flesh, confidence that you were born into a Christian home, confidence that you were baptized, confidence that you were in a member of a gospel preaching church, confidence that you had leaders that called you to strive for holiness, that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Confidence that you belong to a people that love the Lord. But in reality, if none of those things are leading you to what you must do, which is come to Jesus Christ in faith, what he'll later on speak about being found in Christ by faith, well, of course, you have misplaced your confidence. So Jesus Christ is the great ground of our confidence and we can say no doubt from verse seven finally, he's the great gain Jesus is the great gain of the Christian life. You know, students, I think it's probably true, and if you haven't thought about it this way before, I want you to, that if the Lord tarries, and he gives you another five to ten years here in this kind of a context, many of your thoughts about the future, they, they will be, I'm sure, thoughts about what you might gain. Gaining a degree, gaining independence, gaining a vocation, gaining a spouse, gaining a home, gaining a family, gaining security, gaining stability. And what Paul is saying is, all of those things are absolutely meaningless if you have not gained Jesus Christ. If you gain the whole world, but don't have Christ, you lose everything. But if you have nothing and gain Christ... Paul's spiritual mathematics, in this inner sanctuary, as you have gained everything. For the sake of Jesus Christ, I trust you too tonight can leave saying, whatever gain I used to have, I count it as loss, for I'm now found in him. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us this night, that you would help us this week, by your spirit to even raise the Lord Jesus Christ in our attention and our affections, that we might be able to sincerely say each day that we have counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth that is knowing Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.